1: I will call upon you to do a service for me. Play the godfather. Now at Chumpacasino.com. Welcome to the family. No purchase necessary. VGW Group. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply.
2: Tech moves fast. So keep pace with the Daily Crunch podcast
0: from TechCrunch. With new episodes every day, this podcast will give you a quick
1: overview on everything you need and should know about startups, new tech, regulations, and more. Listen to TechCrunch Daily Crunch now, wherever
0: you get your podcasts. That's TechCrunch Daily Crunch, wherever you get your podcasts.
2: Who owns your face? You may think the answer is obvious. Of course you do. But while it's yours to carry around, your likeness is also uploaded to social media pages, captured by closed-circuit television cameras, snapped on strangers' cell phones, and frequently with your name attached. We no longer need to struggle to put a name to a face. Sophisticated facial recognition technology does that automatically, and its deployment in public places is poised to become ubiquitous. I'm Seth Shostak.
3: I'm Molly Bentley. Welcome to Big Picture Science, produced at the SETI Institute, where researchers investigate the nature and origin of life. On Big Picture Science, we step back to get the wide-angle view on science and technology, and in this episode, we employ a wide-angle camera or even a blurry close-up. Proponents of facial recognition technology reel off its benefits, from finding lost children to preventing acts of identity theft. But consider this Currently, there are no comprehensive federal regulations governing the commercial use of this technology. Forget Big Brother for a moment. Big Business can quickly identify you and make a link to your personal data. Can we preserve privacy in the age of the all-seeing eye? Or is there no face to
2: hide? We've long tried to capture the world through visual media. Well before cameras and film came on the scene, artists grab brushes, oils, and canvas to capture a moment. Portrait painters of the 17th century, for example, were highly trained to accurately reproduce delicate features in the physiognomy of their subjects, even if they also, at times, idealize them, depicting the countess as a little slimmer than she uh, might have been, or minimizing the size of the wart on the earl's nose.
4: Voila, c'est fini.
2: The mustaches. Well
3: done. Thank you, sir. I... But I'm quite certain that my eyes are not that close together.
4: Uh, well, in fact... Nor do I have a double chin. Perhaps you need eyewear? I will forgive you, but you must correct this awful rendering immediately. Yes, sir. Good. And uh, maybe
2: broaden and uh, define the chest a tad? You know, to please the countess. I mean, let's remember who was footing the artist's bill. But at any rate, painting was the means back then, even earlier, to ensure that you and your status were preserved.
3: In the early 19th century, photography made the scene. Forget smartphones. Here was a major disruptive technology. The camera radically changed our interaction with the world, turning it into pictures in no more than a fraction of a second. And gradually the technology became democratic. Cameras came within the reach of everyone.
2: So we have a long history of trying to capture what we see, whether on a canvas or a phosphor screen. But could we work backwards? Can we take an image and deduce who or what the artist or photographer saw?
3: If I gave you a photo of a man, could you identify him by his profile alone? Well, facial recognition technology can do that, and we'll hear about that later in the show. But what if I gave you a painting of a sunset? Could you tell me where it was painted? There is a lot of subtle information, even in paintings, one of our first visual mediums.
2: Astronomer and physicist Donald Olson tackles these types of puzzles at the intersection of art and science, but using the tools of a stargazer. It's an endeavor called forensic astronomy. Although his
3: office is on the campus of Texas State University, there are few temporal or geographic boundaries to his investigations. The paintings of Vincent van Gogh or Claude Monet... Ansel Adams' photography of the American West, even the iconic World War II photo of the kissing sailor in Times Square. And for all of these, he consults either weather records, moon charts, even geologic history to answer the question, what do the subtle clues in a painting or photograph tell us about where or when they were made?
2: Dr. Olson works with some pretty abstract images. Take Edvard Munch's haunting 19th-century painting, The Scream, A ghost-like figure walks along a bridge or sidewalk, holding his head, his mouth open, the sea and sky around him swirl in a psychedelic explosion of blue, red, and yellow. What clues could this expressionist work possibly contain about its time or place?
1: We studied his very famous painting, The Scream, and whereas I figure most people are looking at the face of the screamer, we're looking up in the sky at this spectacular red-yellow Blue and white bands, and we asked, Can the sky ever really look like that? And it turns out it did at about the time he created the painting, and we identified the spectacular blood red sky of the scream as what's called a Krakatoa twilight, meaning the spectacular sunsets that were seen all over the world for the next year or two or three after the eruption of the famous Krakatoa volcano.
2: And what year was that?
1: The volcano erupted in 1883, but it caused spectacular twilights, really for the next two or three years. And so we're identifying the painting as having been inspired probably in the winter of 1883 and 1884, and we actually took a trip to Norway found newspaper stories to verify that the Krakatoa Twilights were seen there. And there even were a pair of astronomers at the, what was called the Christiania Observatory, which is just outside of what we now call Oslo. And there was an evening when they saw spectacular blood-red skies to the point that the local townspeople thought that the woods were on fire west of town. They thought forest fire had broken out.
2: Now, wasn't this information already known? Did, uh, you know, Ed not tell people what day he did this painting, or or was that uh, new information?
1: Oh, this was very much new information. In fact, to some people, this even considered controversial information. We published this in an article in Sky and Telescope, and we were the first people to link the sky of the Scream to the Krakatoa eruption.
2: Now, is this generally the case? Because, you know, when I look at paintings, particularly from the latter half of the 19th century, when, you know, representation was not it anymore, I guess photography had shown up and, you know, making an accurate portrayal of what was in front of you wasn't so valued anymore, I just assume that everything in the scene is the product of the artist's imagination as opposed to observation.
1: Well, maybe you haven't read the the letters of especially the Impressionist group in France who state that it was their exact goal to reproduce what was exactly in front of them, their impression of the scene. So... For painters between about 1860, 1870, through to about 1900, in fact, you can make very strong cases that they are being inspired, in some cases, by celestial events. We certainly don't claim that we can analyze every painting and say that it's a real sky, but for for the paintings we've studied, we actually do make that claim. For three paintings by Van Gogh, five by Edvard Munch, one or two by Turner, one by Frederick Church and at least two of Claude Monet's, we claim we can tell you four things. Where the artist was, when the artist was there, which way the artist was looking in the sky, and what they were looking at. And we claim that if you look in detail at our articles, that we can make a convincing case for those paintings. In fact, in some of the cases, we actually have letters by the artist that place them in a certain place at a certain time.
2: So that's verification. You can check this, at least in some cases.
1: Yeah, we we actually sort of can. In fact, the kind of things we check are, like when we're studying a Monet painting, we get 19th century maps of the town in France where he was, not as it is now, but as it was then. Then we collect vintage photographs, which are available from about 1870, 1880 until now, and we find out exactly what the buildings were like then. Then we do astronomical calculations. For us, that's the easiest part. We often do tide calculations. For example, we studied a Monet sunset on the coast of Normandy, where tides are very important. And he specifically said that he was waiting for certain tides for certain paintings. So we do tide calculations to reproduce the water level. We always check the weather records, and it turns out those are available. We can find out when it was raining, when it was clear, and so on. And the last thing, in one of the Monet paintings, we actually checked the direction of the wind. And you could see in his painting there were some smokestacks, and the smoke was blowing in a certain direction, and that enabled us to rule in some dates and rule some out. And just as a quick side issue, there's good reason to believe Monet did Impression Sunrise at about 8 in the morning. And there was a weather observer in La Havre, the place where he did the painting, showing the harbor of La Havre, who also went out at 8 in the morning and recorded everything. The state of the heavens, the direction of the wind, the state of the sea. So we had this just incredible check. In fact, I even imagine a weather observer in La Havre going out to look at the weather. Had he looked to the left, he would have seen Monet in the window of his hotel room, looking out over the harbor to paint Impression Sunrise.
2: Okay, Don, those are examples in which you were able to analyze paintings to solve fine art puzzles, but you're also able to do this with photos. For example, you were able to determine when Ansel Adams photographed Autumn Moon, that famous shot of his of the moon over Yosemite, and its date, as I understand it, had been listed as either 1944 or 1948, and you were able to determine when it was taken. How'd you do that?
1: Well, it's something like nine points of comparison between a computer calculation and what you see in the sky. For example, the phase of the Moon, the direction to the Moon, the altitude of the Moon. There's something called libration, which is very sophisticated, and there's two elements of that on the Moon. And then finally, the position of the Sun. Although you do not see the Sun in the photograph, you see shadows of mountains in the photograph. If you can figure out the shadow is being cast by this mountain in that direction, that tells you where the sun must be in the sky in both altitude and azimuth. And with all the points of comparison, we were actually able to produce a precise date, month, day, year, hour, and minute, when Ansel Adams photographed autumn moon.
2: You more recently applied your astronomy forensic techniques to one of the most iconic photos. It's called The Kiss, and that was Alfred Eisenstadt's picture of an American sailor kissing a nurse in Times Square on VJ Day. Now, we know what day that photo was taken, but you wanted to solve the question of who was the couple and what was the precise time this photo was snapped. A number of people have claimed to know the answer.
1: Yeah, before we did the project... There were two times that people quoted in the literature. Some people said that the kiss photograph was taken right after 7 p.m., which was the official announcement of war's end. Another book, a book-length study, claimed that the photograph was taken at 2 p.m. and named the participants, George Mendonca and Greta Zimmer, kissing each other at 2 p.m. It turned out the astronomical analysis gave a result that was different from both of those times we were able to show that the photograph was taken at 5.51 p.m.
2: Well, how did you do that? I mean, this was a daytime photo. The sun wasn't in the shot. I don't think the moon was in the shot. There were buildings around. I mean, how did you date it that precisely?
1: At first, you wouldn't think it was possible to use astronomy, but the key was sunlight and shadows. Very quickly, if you look in the upper right-hand corner of that photograph, you see a shadow on a building called the Lowe's State Building, the home to the Lowe's State Theater of Times Square. If you can figure out what other building is throwing that shadow onto the Lowe's State Building, then you can get the position of the sun in the sky in both compass direction and altitude. Since you know the day, it's VJ Day, August 14, 1945, by tracking the path of the sun through the sky, You can use the direction of that shadow to determine the precise minute, 5.51 p.m., with interesting consequences for the identities of the sailor and the woman in white.
2: Well, have they been identified now, now that you know when they were uh, photographed?
1: It's not so much that we identified them. Astronomy can never make a positive identification of a person. But what we could do was to rule some people out. For example, the most widely accepted scenario up until we did our project said that George kissed Greta at 2 p.m., and it was essential in part of that story that it be around 2 p.m. because, for example, Greta was there on a late lunch hour. We showed that the photograph was taken closer to 6 p.m., more precisely, 5.51 p.m. Therefore, the widely accepted scenario of George Kissing Greta at 2 p.m. is entirely inconsistent with the astronomical results. I can't tell you who they were, but we can rule out certain widely accepted scenarios.
2: Well, Don, it takes a lot of resolve, a lot of dedication, not to mention technical acumen, to solve questions of key moments in the history of art and photography. What drives you to do this? I mean, you could be working on black holes.
1: Well, it enriches my life to be able to combine the humanities with the sciences. Back when you're in high school, you study everything. You study art, history, chemistry, science, every possible thing. And as you get to be a graduate student, you focus very narrowly on one project in science. We all do that. And it's very enriching to my life to get to broaden back out now and look at problems from art, history, and literature and try to merge them with science.
2: Don Olson, thanks so very much for speaking with us.
1: Well, thank you for having me.
3: Donald Olson is a physicist and astronomer at Texas State University. Well, it's really amazing what he is able to deduce by careful study of these paintings and photos.
2: Yeah, well, what strikes me is the thoroughness and the breadth of the kinds of things he looks for. I mean, this is CSI, maybe it's ASI, Art Scene Investigation. I mean, he he doesn't just do the astronomy, you know, where the sun is in the sky. And keep in mind, the sun only goes back to the same spot in the sky every six months. So, you know, it's uh, kind of in unique places all the time. But also the wind. What else did he mention? The phases of the moon. uh, And he can do this down to the minute. That's incredible. And also it's remarkable that he's
3: able to interpret clues and discern where the artist was or when the artist was painting whether or not the artist ever intended for that to be revealed.
2: Yeah, you know, I'm I'm thinking some of the old photos that I made. Keep in mind that a photo has megabytes of information in it. Anybody who takes photos with a digital camera knows that. There, that there's information about a photo of my brothers when we were kids that, you know, I've never thought about. I don't know what time of the day it was taken, and maybe I could find that out if I put enough effort into it. I wonder if he could work on paintings that were purely abstract, like... Jackson Pollock. <laughs> yeah, or
3: Kasper Malevich's White on White. Yes. Uh, you'd have to be pretty good to figure out when that was you painted. You
2: know, it would impress me.
3: Well, it shows that there's a lot of information packed into paintings and photos And as we're about to find out, the ability to tease out that information from photos in particular and make a positive ID on their subjects has become quite sophisticated.
2: It's no face to hide on Big Picture Science. Okay, as astronomer Don Olson said, he was able to tell us a lot about the iconic Times Square photo, the kiss, although he couldn't identify the kissing couple. But if that photo were taken today, facial recognition technology might very well provide us with their names.
4: My name is Marius Savides. I'm a research professor in the Electrical and Computer Engineering Department at Carnegie Mellon University, and I'm also the director of the Carnegie Mellon Lab Biometric Center
2: biometrics. That's the science of gathering and analyzing biologic data. In his lab, for example, Dr. Savitas is developing technology that can create a positive face print as unique to you as your fingerprint, and more specifically, iris scanners that with one scan can identify someone based on subtle patterns in their eye. He is a strong supporter of developing facial recognition
3: technology for security purposes. He says that tools that can analyze measurable characteristics, the defining features of your face or eyes, can then be used to verify identities. This would tighten computer security. Imagine if your laptop unlocked
2: only when it saw your face, or it could help the police identify criminals. Dr. Savitas is focused on specific applications, but he draws on computer engineering principles found in many facial recognition systems. The Facebook program that automatically tags you, Microsoft's biometric ID program, scanners used by the military at checkpoints, they all take advantage of the unique geometry of your mug.
4: Some of the early work on facial recognition is based on a principle that I tried to decompose the face as a set of what I would like to call Lego blocks. Imagine that the face is composed of a different kind of Lego blocks that is hard for us to visualize, but when we use, for example, these 10 Lego blocks, I can reconstruct your face. If I use another set of 10 Lego blocks, I can reconstruct my face.
3: What do those Lego blocks represent? For example, the distance between my eyes, or the shape of my nose, or from my nose to one cheekbone? Can you give me an idea of of some of the areas of the face that the computer is
4: isolating? Imagine that this Lego block representation is a Lego block which may actually have something that looks like a nose, something that looks like an eye, or a combination. And when I add these Lego blocks together, And these are Lego blocks of pixels, say they're images. When I add them together, I get an image that looks like your face or my face. This is a very simple principle which some of the traditional algorithms use and is a way to sort of explain how we can able to get a short representation of a person's identity into a set of numbers.
3: Now for you to be able to identify me if I were to walk into a room or so forth, wouldn't you need to begin with a good quality original photo of me, right?
4: That is correct. That is the ideal condition. It is, it is important to have a good enrollment image of you. If, if you have a blurry image of someone, a uh, blurry image may look like anyone. Same thing for the algorithm. If we give it a nice, clear, high resolution face image. It will do a better job in identifying me when I want to get authenticated if I'm trying to get access to, for example, my home or, or my lab space.
3: Well, Marios, this technology is becoming so sophisticated, it's actually quite remarkable. So let us I just want to ask you a couple questions about what it's able to do. So let's say you have a photo of me. Then would you be able to recognize me in profile or say if it was far away and the picture was a little blurry? I mean, just how how well can this technology zero in on the unique geometry of my face and identify me?
4: So that's exactly the research that we're actually developing here at Carnegie Mellon University is working on exactly those tough, challenging problems. How can I recognize you if you're not exactly looking at the camera? How can I recognize you if it is a blurry photo because you're moving and the capture had motion blur? So... Everything we do here is about how do we make it a pleasant user experience so you don't have to stare at the camera, you don't have to do something special to get authenticated. Uh, One of the key ingredients that we have is an algorithm that can basically take a 2D photo and be able to generate a 3D model. So I can take a picture of you and I can then generate a 3D model And I can then rotate that model any angle and see how you would look like from any of those angles. That helps my algorithm identify you, irrespective of whether you're looking straight at the camera or from an angle.
3: Well, couldn't I then just send in my identical twin, although I don't have one, but let's say I did. Could my identical twin pass as me from a distance?
4: I love that you asked that question because it just happens we did some nice work on distinguishing identical twins, and one of the features that we use in distinguishing identical twins is facial asymmetry. So we've shown that facial asymmetry is actually a distinguishing biometric and can be used to identify one twin from another identical twin.
3: Okay, well, what if I want to elude your, your cameras another way? I could gain or lose a lot of weight or grow a beard. Admittedly, that might be hard for me to do at this moment, but I could I could shave the hair on on my head. Will that trick the cameras?
4: No, because we don't look at uh, the hair on the head. If you had a beard or a mustache, we have algorithms that can actually remove that so it can get a match with or without. Those are the kind of things that we're working on.
3: Now, the technology that you're developing there, you said that you want this to be friendly technology. So this is for the purposes of identification so that We don't have to carry our keys around or our little swipe card. Uh, We could be identified for security purposes through our face. Is, Is that what you're working on?
4: Absolutely. You know, Hollywood has done an amazing job of stigmatizing biometrics in a very negative way. And what that has done is making people reluctant to adopt biometrics for access control. I mean, if I think of how many times I lose my key, or how many times I have to change my password on my computer. If there is a way for my computer system, my home, my TV, any appliance, any computer system that I interact with that can identify me in a robust way, and more importantly, in a very unobtrusive way, then it's a whole new level of sort of human computer, human robotic interaction. My computer's you know, turning up and saying, Good morning Mars, how are you today? Would you like to see your emails? or whether if I entered my home and I got that greeting. That would be amazing, especially if I didn't have to do anything special.
3: Well, now, Marios, you and your lab are developing another form of biometrics. We've been talking about facial recognition software or facial recognition technology. But you're developing a scanner that relies on the uniqueness of the eyes, an iris scanner. the first thing that the scanner does, I think, is, is have to identify a face, so facial recognition comes in there. And then what does it do? It, it focuses on the eyes? Can you, can you tell me how the iris scanner
4: works? Absolutely. First of all, it's nothing scary as ominous as Hollywood makes it out to be. It has a simple camera. All it's doing is taking a picture of your face. And the process is very much like what you mentioned. First thing we do is we have to detect a face. So we first do face detection. That tells the camera where to move so that the face is centered in the field of view. Then we locate different facial features on the face. Once we know where the eyes are, we actually focus on the eyes and grab a high resolution picture of the iris. From that, we extract features, and those features essentially translate to a set of ones and zeros. So we end up with a string of bits, and depending on how many number of bits match, I can say who it is.
3: Can you give me an example of how two sets of eyes would have different identifying features besides the color? What else is unique about an iris?
4: So, first of all, you know, iris is the sphincter muscle that basically contracts or dilates the pupil. And the texture on the iris is what is, is, is unique. We're using features that extract that texture information. And basically map that into a series of ones and zeros. So essentially, someone's iris can be represented by, say, a thousand bits. And whether those bits are ones and zeros basically make your iris different from mine.
3: Wow, that is... That is truly remarkable. Well, one of the applications that you have touted is using this to spot criminals. And it's remarkable how far away this scanner can work. So can you give me the scenario where, let's say, you're pulled over by the side of the road or a policeman pulls a driver over, and and how would that policeman use this iris scanner to identify the driver?
4: In that particular scenario, we wanted to address some of the uh, serious challenges that law enforcement officers face every day. You know, there have been a number of deaths of officers purely just through routine traffic stops. Is there a way to identify who is in the driver's seat and if that person is a criminal, that at least will alert the officer to potential dangers before they get close where they can be in harm's way. You know, what's the first thing you do when you're stopped? You you look naturally at your side view or your rear view mirror. And if if you can see the officer, the officer can see you, and what's visible is your eye. So we thought, can we get a picture of your iris?
3: So the idea is that the driver glances in the rearview mirror, and the policeman from a ways back um, is using the iris scanner to capture that face and the iris in that brief glance in the rearview mirror.
4: That is correct.
3: Now but Mario's many of the scenarios that have been in the news I mean they have been of policemen b- being killed but it has also been of innocent people being killed drivers or um you know racial profiling of men and women so I wonder is there any way that this technology could also save an innocent person in that scenario that you propose
4: I think it exactly attempts to address that because now if the officer knows that there is no danger as they approach the driver, they're not going to be uh, aggressive or in a defense mechanism mode. And I think, you know, when we talk about this technology and its applications, it has a huge application in the, in the potential of saving young innocent lives. There are so many children being abducted. And how do you recognize a child that, you know, was abducted two years ago and now 10 years have passed and they look different? That's where the power of iris recognition comes into play, because your iris is thought not to change over a person's lifetime. That can be used to identify, oh, that's the missing children.
3: But couldn't this technology, and I think this is the fear, be applied wantonly? So it's not just for security purposes or in in criminal identification, but that any of us could be identified at any time when we step outside. And so what's to stop people, the government... For one, businesses, criminals for that matter, from collecting all sorts of biometrics on us and identifying us by name uh, whenever we're in a public sphere?
4: That is a great question. I think what I would say is uh, I'm not worried about the government. You know, there are regulations and laws about how the government can collect data and use biometrics. I think it is unclear how commercial entities may use the data, and I think probably getting clear about how different entities use biometrics in their premises is almost equivalent of the privacy statement that you go to a website on how they use any data or track you when you're on, online. I agree, those have to be defined.
3: So you're not worried about developing a society where everyone is identified all the time the minute they walk out in, in public?
4: You know, I'm not worried about That component, I'm more worried about, we don't have enough of this technology. I'm worried the fact that law enforcement needs this technology to be more efficient in protecting us. Uh, Crime rates are high, and anytime this technology can be used to help save a life, protect, I think that's something that can make a real difference right now versus a worry about something that I can't touch or see.
3: Mario Savides, thank you so much for speaking to us.
4: Thank you. Thank you, Molly.
2: Mario Savides is a research professor in the Electrical and Computer Engineering Department and the director of the SciLab Biometric Center at Carnegie Mellon University.
3: It's amazing what these computers are able to do. When we consider what Donald Olson was doing with his photographs, it took him four years to analyze that Times Square photo and figure out what was happening with the sun and the shadows. Now, what Mario Savides and what facial recognition technology is doing is different. Um, The endeavor is different, but it gives you an idea just how sophisticated computers are becoming in mimicking the ability of the human brain to discern
2: patterns. Yeah, it's a talent we take for granted, the fact that you can recognize, you know, your kid's sister, whatever, no matter what the lighting, what the angle, I mean, usually you can do it from half a block away, too. It's amazing that ability that we have. And now they're able to put that into software so that the machines can do it. And And Savitas points out the benefits, and many of them are quite compelling. When he talks about solving crimes and stuff like that, I particularly liked the uh, fact that, well, we don't need to have passwords anymore. What a pain passwords are. You you look at your computer, and it knows it's you, and you don't have to, you know, adjust the light or look directly into the camera or something like that. I mean, that, I have to say, would be good. I was thinking of dogs. Dogs are pretty good at recognizing their owners from all angles and in all light. But then I thought dogs are probably doing it by smell.
3: So maybe in the field of the field of biometrics will expand to include human scent. So that your computer could identify you just by your smell?
2: Yeah, it doesn't sound very uh, savory, but uh, on the other hand, maybe it'll happen. It's, it's difficult to build a smell sensor, actually. That's maybe one of the big problems. The but does it make
3: sense to build a smell sensor?
2: Not yet, yes, no. But, you know, don't, don't hold your nose. But you'd have to produce sense to make a smell sensor. You would have to raise sense to produce a smell sensor.
3: Mario Savides feels that the development of biometric tools can help make us safer. But privacy advocates ask, at what cost? Are we willing to be tracked and identified whenever we go out in public?
2: It's no face to hide on Big Picture Science.
1: With Wired Science, you can geek out all you want. Listen in the morning while you're getting ready or during lunch while you check NASA's astronomy picture of the day. Check out Wired Science now wherever you get your podcasts. That's Wired Science wherever you get your podcasts. We've heard
2: what facial recognition technology can do, but these impressive abilities take on a different tone when seen from the perspective of a privacy advocate.
0: Facial recognition technology allows for you to be identified remotely and without your knowledge by analyzing the precise dimensions and characteristics of your face. My name is Alvaro Bedoya, and I am Executive Director of the Center on Privacy and Technology at Georgetown Law.
3: In June 2015, Dr. Bedoya and members of eight other privacy and civil liberty groups dramatically walked out of a meeting with industry executives devoted to discussing the future application of facial recognition technology. The meeting was the latest in 16 months of negotiation put in motion by the U.S. Department of Commerce's National Telecommunication and Information Administration. The goal to establish voluntary guidelines to protect privacy in light of this powerful new technology.
2: Dr. Bedoya says that not one member of the industry, and that included, for example, Facebook, Google, Apple, but also the retailer Walmart, would agree to even a basic privacy provision. No possibility of opting out of this technology for you. He and other
3: groups fear it will be unregulated, and they imagine a scenario in which, for example, the computers in commercial establishments routinely identify you as you walk down the street, perhaps even calling out to you by name. He says that we have this ability already, but the idea was made memorable in the science fiction film Minority Report. The Tom Cruise character, John Anderton, while running through a shopping mall, is identified by multiple cameras and marketing campaigns. Dr. Bedoya acknowledges that facial recognition technology has possible benefit, as outlined by Mario Savides, but he also sees a darker consequence in the ubiquitous use of this sophisticated technology.
0: So for example, facial recognition technology will analyze the dimensions of your face, so the distance between your eyes and your nose, the shape of your face. Increasingly in the 21st century, they are actually creating a three-dimensional model of your face, uh, looking at the texture and tone of your skin and putting that all together in a digital model that's often called a face print.
2: So when I walk into my local bank and they have these video cameras there, they could take those images they've made of me walking in there. And, uh, you know, construct what I look like in a digital form and, and be able to recognize me again, even if the lighting is different, the angle is different, even after I get a haircut? That's the interesting thing about what's happening right now. Historically, that has
0: not been true. And historically, facial recognition has required what's called a cooperative subject. In other words, someone that either knows he or she is being photographed or is under ideal lighting and face position conditions the latest generation of facial recognition technology can reliably identify people in non-ideal settings when they're looking away from the camera when it's dark when their face is partially obscured and so that is one of the things that's making this technology pop the fact that the old limits on it are falling away due to advances in science
2: you say reliable i mean is it at the level of ninety percent accurate
0: sure a lot of companies in the space claim accuracy rates of 97 to 99%. Google and Facebook claim that for their algorithms, they are accurately identifying someone 97 to 99% of the time. And for the record, human level accuracy is, I believe, a little above 97%. And so some of these algorithms claim to be more accurate than humans.
2: So they'll recognize people, I might not. (laughs) Right, right. Okay, so one of the scenarios of how this technology will be used is you know not only to identify my face in public i mean i don't know how i feel about that but make a commercial application out of it so right. you know i walk through a shopping mall and some voice starts calling out hey seth are you looking for shoes again and you know you might want to check out this sale over here can can you describe this kind of scenario what happens
0: Sure. And in many ways, that is a concerning scenario, but that is the least concerning scenario because it is very clear to you that someone is somehow recognizing you as you and telling you about it. They're saying, hey, Seth, you know, seems like you need a new pair of shoes. You know, come on down to Payless Shoe Source and buy a new pair. We'll offer you 20% off. The other ways in which the technology can be used are far more problematic. So imagine walking into a car dealership and before you say a word, the car salesman walks out and knows who you are, where you work, how much money you make, and what your credit score is you know yes right now when you walk into a car dealership you end up surrendering a lot of information particularly if you are getting financing through the dealer But imagine a scenario where you walk in and before you say a word before you interact at all there is an imbalance of information and the salesman can say oh you know I know that I can extract a certain price from someone because I know how much money he or she makes but let me actually give you two different use cases that are real use cases right now Retailers are increasingly contracting with facial recognition vendors so that the moment someone walks in their store They will get an alert if the person is a VIP if the person is a Suspected shoplifter or if the person is in the words of one vendor a known litigious individual. I'm not exactly sure what that means, but retailers are increasingly figuring out exactly who sets foot in their store the moment they do using facial recognition another use and This is the last one I'll give you is um Churches are starting to deploy this technology to keep Keep track of who is actually attending church on Sunday morning and who is, you know, sound asleep at home so that it can, you know, ping the folks that are coming a lot or maybe remind the folks to come that aren't coming, and apparently also to keep folks out of services that they don't want attending. So the technology can be used in a lot of different ways. It can be used in positive ways as well. I want to be very clear about that. Imagine a scenario where you go to a mall, and let's say you're there with an elderly family member. And let's say it's an elderly father who suffers from dementia or Alzheimer's. He gets lost. Uh, A child gets lost. You could conceivably hand over a photograph of your son or your dad to the mall, and they could use facial recognition to find him or her. So there's positive applications as well. And finally, there's use cases that involve authentication so I go to an ATM and I put in my ATM card and I type in my password and then there's a third layer of authentication the first is my card the second is my password the third is a scan of my face uh, that recognizes yes this in fact is who he says he is
2: okay well I have to say Alvaro that a lot of this sounds a little bit creepy (laughs) <laughs> uh, on, on, the, on the one hand, you know, there are benefits, as you pointed out, to this facial recognition capability. Right. But, but the other idea that they know more about me than I know about them, and without my consenting to that, I find a little bit disturbing. Earlier this year, there was a meeting about this technology organized by the Obama administration. Members of industry developing facial recognition software attended, as did privacy groups, and an astounding thing happened. Nine out of nine of the privacy groups stood up and walked out of the meeting. Why did they do that?
0: We did that uh, and I was one of the privacy advocates involved because not a single company or trade association would at that time agree to a general rule. There would be exceptions, a general rule though, that companies should get your permission before they use this powerful technology to identify you. In in fact, uh, let me go one step further. We began this negotiation, and this was a process to try to set voluntary rules that companies could adopt, sort of a voluntary privacy code of conduct for companies using facial recognition. We first asked, okay, there will be exceptions, but in general, can't you agree that someone should get your consent before using facial recognition on you? And there, Facebook said, no, we cannot agree to that. Microsoft said, no, we cannot agree to that. Uh, several industry associations said, no, we cannot agree to that. And then we asked a far narrower question, which was, okay, let's say you're walking down the street, a public street, you're not on private property. Should a company you've never heard of be able to use facial recognition on you without telling you about it and getting your permission first? Or should they have to get consent first. And is there any company or industry association in this room that would agree that in this edge case of you walking down the street in a strange company you have never heard of identifying you using facial recognition, in that edge case, they should get your consent first. And not a single company or trade association would agree
2: to that. But that sounds like a refutation of your right to simply live your life in private if you want to, that that you don't have to tell everybody where you're going uh, or anything about you. Why is it that they objected to this? It seems like a very basic kind of right.
0: I think this speaks to a broader problem in Washington, Seth, and it's that industry lobbying in Washington is basically shutting down the federal ability to protect consumer privacy. And so you have these positions being taken in D.C. by industry lobbyists that are basically contradicting actual industry best practices, uh, but more importantly are setting up a middle ground in D.C. that is well beyond anything outside of the Beltway would accept. And let me give you a little more meat to this. Two states actually regulate facial recognition, Illinois and Texas, and both say, before you enroll someone in one of these databases, you got to get their permission first. So outside of the Beltway, in everywhere else in America, it is utterly uncontroversial that this is a significant invasion of privacy, and you must get consent first. But in D.C., industry lobbying is so strong that I think a lot of these folks see it as their job to stop any effort to regulate this technology, even if it is moderate and even if it is modest. And and look, if I were them, I might also say that this is a fast-moving technology and norms are changing, and I want my folks to be able to innovate however they see fit. Let's not clamp all that down with rules right now. But frankly, this is not a new technology. That's the great irony here. Facial recognition is now an established technology. So, you know, if you have a passport, a driver's license, and a Facebook account, you are enrolled in all likelihood in three separate facial recognition databases. And so this is not some new fledgling idea that needs to be nurtured. No, this is an established, powerful technology.
2: So the industry is taking a a kind of conservative position in the sense that they're trying to you know, keep any new regulation from occurring. But in terms of businesses, I mean, what does Facebook get out of all this surrendering of uh, private information?
0: when you get an email in your inbox and it says you've been tagged in a photo that above any other email from facebook will actually drive you to facebook to check facebook and open it up and see who's in that photo and so what facebook gains from this is a very easy way to drive traffic to the site you know a lot of people look at facebook as a one big photo album and so facebook uses face recognition to basically make tagging easier but the reason people need to be worried about companies like Facebook or any company using this technology is that the question is not do you trust them today. The question is you trust them 10 or 15 years from now because unlike you know your IP address, unlike the MAC address on your phone, unlike your credit card numbers, your face and your face print can be used to identify you a decade, a decade and a half, two decades down the road if you have enough photos of someone. And so the harm here and the risk here is that we are going to create a society where you cannot walk outside and not have entities you've never heard of tracking you without telling you about it first. It is a very simple question of human freedom. Will we let people go about their lives outside without automatic, by default, tracking? And increasingly, the trend you're seeing uh, in industry is, no, we won't have that. We will not allow that. And I think we need to do something about it.
2: What would you say to somebody sitting next to you on the train to work, a young person who uses Facebook all the time, probably on the train there, (laughs) who's perfectly okay, perfectly down with sharing all this information, can you give them an example of why they might not want you to do this?
0: Well, I think it's perfectly fine for someone to decide actively to share. And, and that's something that frequently happens people conflate sharing with sort of invasions of privacy and i think you'd be surprised that people who are very comfortable sharing things get very upset when you take things from them without their knowledge and so i want people to be able to choose how much they share with the world and how much tracking can be done on them and if they want to go ahead and take that choice that's great but right now what industry is pushing here in washington is not having to ask in the first place to be able to tell someone maybe after the fact, oh, hey, by the way, you're in this facial recognition database. Let us know if that's an issue as opposed to actually getting their permission. And I just think that's wrong.
2: Alvaro Bedoya, thanks so very much for speaking with us. Thank you, Seth. Alvaro Bedoya is the executive director
3: of the Center on Privacy and Technology at Georgetown Law.
2: So what we've been talking about here, recognizing faces, placing scenes, knowing when something happened, I mean, all that may seem kind of trivial because humans, and to a degree even animals, have been able to do that for millions of years. But you know what's happening here that's revolutionary is twofold. To begin with, there's the development of cheap sensors. Just think, when I was a kid, a television camera might cost, I don't know, $50,000. Now you can buy one for a buck. And the second thing is the development of fast computing. So it's easy to say that the position of the sun gives you the time of day, but, you know, they knew that during the Renaissance. But it would have taken them days to compute the position of the sun. Thanks to the fact that we have computers now, Don Olson can do this in seconds with his laptop. And Mario Savides can change the angle of a photo to compare it with a file photo of some face also in seconds. This is truly a revolution, and the benefits are clear, but the dangers are maybe not so clear. Well, it's interesting that
3: you talk about the speed of computing because speed is the issue here, and it seems as though the technology is outpacing the law. As Dr. Bedoya said, this technology is racing forward, and we already see its employment by big business, um, and yet the law is trying to establish some very basic guidelines on how facial recognition technology is used. And as he said, at this moment at least, industry doesn't even want an opt-out button, so you may be involved um, without your
2: consent. Of course, we're going to see what happens. All new technology brings benefits and dangers. And the computers will be seeing what happens, too.
3: Thanks to the talent who have to face us each week to produce the show, Gary Niederhoff and Barbara Vance.
2: Also thanks to financial support from Rena Shulsky-David and Sammy David. Big Picture Science is produced at the SETI Institute, where scientists study the origin and nature of life. And a big thanks also to our listeners. Your
3: ears have been attuned to No Face to Hide. If you'd like to hear more Big Picture Science, you'll find those episodes in our archive at
2: bigpicturescience.org. And if you're a podcast listener but you prefer listening to over-the-air radio because otherwise you'll have to face your handheld device, check out the listing on our website of radio stations that carry the program. And if your local station is not on that list, well, consider letting them know you like the show.
3: Oh, and do you have a comment, a criticism, or a suggestion? Well, throw in some faint praise and then email it all to bigpicturescience at seti.org.
4: And a shade taller. And can you replace the thinning hair with buoyant, thick curls? I think that would suit me better.
1: (sighs) Yes, monsieur. Step into the world of power, loyalty, and luck. I'm gonna make him an offer he can't refuse. With family cannolis and spins mean everything now you want to get mixed up in the family business introducing the godfather at ChumbaCasino.com. test your luck in the shadowy world of the godfather slot someday i will call upon you to do a service for me play the godfather now at ChumbaCasino.com. welcome to the family no purchase necessary vgw group void prohibited by law 18 plus terms and conditions apply